Today's scripture is a reading from Daniel 9. If you would like to follow along in your red Bibles in the pews, this is page 746. We will read from Daniel 9:14 to 19. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from the city Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy, and for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Just a forewarning into Daniel, uh, in the next few weeks, uh, not including today, today's passage isn't as challenging, but um, in the next few weeks, starting from two, chapter 7 and chapter 8, and here's a little bit of respite before we continue on, are going to be the most challenging chapters of the book of Daniel. All these apocalyptic, uh, all this apocalyptic literature that we're going to go through is really, really challenging. Um, so starting next week, uh, it's going to be tough. And so uh, I'm just praying for the return of Christ before that time. Um, and we went through a Lenten series, which was like three months long. And I was just praying that time that Christ would return. He was like, God, I, I really don't want to go through all this stuff. Because um, my workload just increases. Like I have to study a lot more uh, for these things. And... Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't know if that's going to happen. I, I think with God's humor, it's going to happen right after we finish Daniel. Like, and he's like, ha ha, like so. Anyway, um, my assumption is that you are reading uh, the Bible on your own, that you are studying the book of Daniel on your own, and that whatever you study, you bring into your small groups to share uh, with, with that group. And all this supplemental material that is available out there is to help us understand Daniel further, and my hope is that you're sharing that amongst your friends, because the half hour that we spend here every week on a Sunday to talk about these things isn't sufficient. What I do on a Sunday is not sufficient to kind of understand this completely. It's just kind of giving you an overview, and so for you to dig into that, uh, would be really great, and, and you can even share your insights with me, and uh, that would be really, really wonderful. What we have this morning is a really great prayer from Daniel. It's a really important section, actually, of the book of Daniel, and we find that Daniel is a person of prayer, because you look back to chapter 6, and that is exactly why he was sentenced to the lion's den, was because of his prayer life. 
His enemies knew exactly where to find him. They knew exactly the times that he prayed because he prayed three times a day. And so they knew, you know, if we're going to catch Daniel after the king's decree to say, don't pray, we're going to catch him there. And that's exactly what happened. So they knew that this guy was a man of prayer. And they knew exactly where to find him, that he would not... uh, deter his schedule or anything like that, but nothing would deter him from praying to God. That being a background of the story, let's jump into verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. And so this puts us into a parallel timeline of chapter 6. This puts us in a time when Daniel was having this time of prayer. He was a person of prayer, as we just said. And And a person that was also very, very familiar with the scriptures and what the prophets had written in them. Look at verse 2. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So Daniel knew from the prophet Jeremiah because Jeremiah wrote in chapter 25 What was to happen with those who were exiled? What was to happen with those who are held in captivity, who are wondering, how long is this going to be for? But Daniel knew chapter 25, verses 11 and 12 of Jeremiah, that they read this. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then, after the 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. Now, we all know from history as well as the past Daniel studies that the Babylonians who had taken the Israelites into captivity were then overtaken by the Medo-Persians. And then the Medo-Persian Empire overtook the, the Babylonians and they are... Currently, at this time, as Daniel's writing this, the ones in power. From the studies in Daniel and the scriptures, he knew, or Daniel knew, that this time of exile, this time of captivity, it would come to an end. He doesn't know the exact date, but he knows it's around this time because I'm now in my 80s, and I was brought over here as a teen. So... It's around this time that God said we will no longer be held in captivity. So this is the 6th century B.C. And the cries of the people during that time were, God, how long is this going to go for? How long, God? Which isn't all that different from the cries we hear from us, from people who are suffering, from people who are in pain, from people who are under oppression or suffering injustice. We wonder, how long, God? How long do we have to put up with these things? How long do we have to put up with all the injustice around us that seems like they're prospering? How long, God? How long is this war going to last? This lack of peace in our world, how long is this going to last? How long, God? And yet here we have Daniel reading the scriptures, and he learned what the word of God told him, and he was led to pray, just like us. We don't know when the return of Christ is. Just like he didn't know the exact day, but he knew it was coming. And just like us, we know it's coming. And we have to continue to pray. We have to continue studying the, daily, the scriptures daily because the scriptures tell us 
of Christ's return, that it's coming, that the end of this injustice, that the end of this war, the lack of peace in our world is coming. And so we need to study the scriptures regularly, consistently. Otherwise, we get discouraged. We forget the promises. And we get this spiritual malnourishment, this spiritual unhealth coming over us, and we get weakened spiritually, not looking for the promises of God and what he's already told us. See, we won't develop, we won't mature as much as we can without the living word nourishing us, feeding us. And our spiritual growth is stunted without it. You'll notice that the most useful people that God has ever used in all of history have this thing in common. They pray and they study the word of God. Those are things that they all have in common. And these spiritual disciplines, they they orient us to who God is. They continually remind us who God is and his promises. And then they also remind us who we are and how weak and feeble and discouraged we get throughout history. Yet we need to remember that he promises these things. Knowing who God is. Knowing who we are. And that leads us to how we pray and what we do because we have these promises before us. We can take Daniel as an example. Daniel knew from the prophet Jeremiah that they are an exiled people, that they are a people held in captivity, but it ends in 70 years. And so what did this cause Daniel to do? Did Daniel just say like, yeah, you know what? It's going to end in 70 years, so I don't, I don't need to do anything. I can just sit back and wait for that time to come, and you know, no big deal. He does not do that at all. He still prays. He's still interceding for his people. He's still hopeful for Jerusalem to be established, and he's, you can be sure that he's the one praying for Nehemiah and Ezra who are, who are heading there to, to rebuild the city. And what did Daniel pray? Jump down to verse 16. He prays this. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins. And for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. And so Daniel is essentially praying for the Lord's will to be done, realizing it's yours, God. And he doesn't do this in a prideful way in terms of saying like, hey, we've suffered enough. You owe us. We're your people. So when are you going to do this for us? He doesn't do that. He's really humble about it. He realizes we have our iniquities. We have our sins. You're a righteous God. Do your will. We also know you're a merciful God. And so you notice how Daniel's posture in prayer is. Look at verses 3 and 4. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments. I turned my face to the Lord God. It's reverent. It's sincere. It's purposeful. And he's not casual about it. He's very intentional. He's very deliberate. He's showing that he cares. He's seeking, pleading, fasting, addressing God reverently, respectfully, 
And he's recognizing that God isn't one of us. He's not a peer. He's not a buddy. And sometimes we have this casualness, this familiarity with God that he's just our buddy. But let's not confuse the intimacy that we have with God because he is our heavenly father with a God that is just familiar, that he's just our buddy. And there are times we can get so familiar and casual with God that we forget who God is, that he's the God that keeps covenant with steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Now, how many people who claim to love God, who claim to follow Jesus, can actually keep his commandments or are even interested in keeping his commandments? I think if you go down to the lake this afternoon and you ask people if they love God, if they believe in God at all, but if they believe in God and they say, and you ask them, do you love God? They'll say, yeah, absolutely, I, I love God. You can even ask them if they love Jesus. And they'll even say like, yeah, he's a cool guy. He's a good guy. I, like, I love how he fed the hungry. I love how he clothed the naked. I love all that stuff about Jesus. Here's the catch. You cannot possibly love God if you don't keep his commandments. It's impossible. John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my... There's not a, I love you, but I don't keep your commandments. That's not possible. Why? Because that's the nature of a covenant. That's the nature of this covenant love, that God entered into this covenant love with us. You look to Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 23. But this common command I gave them, obey my voice and I will be your God. And you shall be my people and walk in all the way that I command you that it may be well with you. Don't walk in the way of God, in the way that he has commanded, then it won't be well with you. And so it's a similar thing in, say, a marriage covenant. And that we who are married all know that it's not about feelings, about how you feel about your spouse a particular day, and um, because some of you even this morning might not be getting along with your spouse. So, you know, we know it's not about feelings, right? It's not feelings. Because you need to choose to love even when that person's unlovable. It's beyond feelings. It is because you've made a covenant with the exchange of your vows, with the exchange of your rings, that you're going to honor this covenant whether you feel like it or you don't, that you're going to honor the covenant. And it's a commitment to the covenant vows that are a sign of the nature of that covenant love that you guys are giving to one another. And so this love that people are saying, I love God, I love God, and they don't keep their commandments, that is love without obedience, which is just an over-romanticizing of what love really is. Because that is not how God's love is with us. I don't feel like loving you, so therefore none of your promises are for you. That is not God at all. God is, this is my covenant with you. Promises are never broken. I keep them. How much confidence can we have in that? If it was just all about feelings, that would be terrible. All you'd be doing is striving to like, please a God that can never be pleased. Just like your spouse can never be pleased fully. There's always going to be something else, right? My office is a mess. It will probably always be a mess. 
Sorry, honey. But we made a covenant. Thank God. Right? Thank God. There's an obedience to love even when the other person is being unlovable. Just like us between us and God. When we're completely fallen out of grace. When we're completely fallen out of his mercy. Yet, it's his covenant that keeps it true. It's not how we feel or how he feels. He keeps his covenant. And the God who made a covenant with us is great and he's awesome. God is righteous. He is holy while we aren't those things. And so Daniel recognizes that and he confesses that humbly. He confesses it. Verses 5 and 6. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. And so you'll notice that Daniel's relationship with God is personal in verses 2 through 4, right? He's using the personal pronoun I. And then in verses 5 and 6, he moves to this more communal relationship with this pronoun we. We. We have responsibilities to one another. We have responsibilities to our our communal uh, relationship with one another. And there are things we share as a community. And this confession of our sins is one of them that's found in in verses 5, 8, 11, 15. This is found over and over again, repeated four times. And so sins, what, what, what is that? It's where we've gone the wrong way, we, where we've not gone the way that God had commanded, that has directed, where we act wickedly, where we rebel against God. Now, I realize that sin is not fun to talk about at all. It's actually not a popular thing to talk about at all, and especially within Bay Area churches, this is a taboo subject. And within the church planting world, they tell you not to talk about politics and not to talk about sin. Because if you do this, it's going to make people not want to be there. How would you feel if you went into a hospital and the hospital said, I can tell you everything you want, but I can't tell you about the disease that's killing you. I can tell you that you're exercising great and your diet's great, but you know, this blood work will just put that aside. We can't do that. We'd be a bad hospital. We'd be a bad church. We can't do that. And so even though it's a very unpopular subject and something that people don't want to talk about is that S word, sin. In my household, the S word is sex because I have a teenager and pre-adolescence and that, con- that conversation is so uncomfortable. I'd rather talk about sin. Um, <laughs> but we're rebellious by nature. And we read what God's word says and we automatically want to rebel against it. Don't we? Automatically. God says that? Well, I don't want to do that. I don't, I don't want to believe that. Politically, sociologically, our society doesn't believe those sorts of things. Why? I don't want to believe that either. I want to side with the culture. I think, I think that's an antiquated way of looking at X. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. 
and those who enter by it are many, many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. See, God's word doesn't change. Our culture changes all the time. What we value changes all the time. And God's word is right in front of us for centuries, for thousands of years. And there are things in there that we will not like and that we won't want to follow. And I'll be the first one to admit to you, there are things in the scriptures that I don't like and I wish they weren't there and I wish it was different. But it's not. I need to follow the word even though inside of me I don't like it. Because I know, if anything, I am wicked. And I also know that God isn't. So hopefully, this isn't too general for us to say that we're rebellious. We're wicked. Now we'll have an opportunity after uh, the message to be more specific about how we haven't listened to God. Because Daniel is pretty specific about his confession and maybe that can start now as we're thinking about this to make personal confession to God and also to think just communally as a community how we need to confess to God the things that we're guilty of as a community. Verses 7 through 11, to you, O Lord, belong righteousness, but to us open shame. As at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. For we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. It's because of God's righteousness that we are judged. God is a righteous God. But here's the beautiful, beautiful thing. It's also because of his righteousness that he delivers us from judgment. So we, just like Israel, we have not obeyed the voice of God. We have not walked in his laws. We've transgressed. We've rebelled against God. And so how have we done that? There are a lot of ways, aren't there? Because there are so many other gods that we serve, that we find more attractive, that we follow. Sometimes those gods are really cute. Because sometimes those gods, sometimes I have four of them. And I do everything in my life to serve those gods. Because you can tell by how I spend my money and how much time I spend and all the effort, what four little gods I serve. You just have to look at my checkbook. It depletes really fast with those sucker gods. but they become more attractive and that can be whoever it may be for you but for me I can identify those idols in my life pretty quickly and God has to like 
smack me on the head every so often to remind me, like, those guys aren't your gods. Like, look up. Right? And, there, and there, are way, there are ways that we're instructed to live, but there are many who have not followed these instructions. And we do that all the time also, don't we? And there are consequences to this idolatry. There are consequences to these disobedient acts, these rebellions. And so we need to repent. Verse 12, he has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled, against, ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. Daniel acknowledged that the calamity that the people of God encountered is directly related to their sin, to their wickedness, to their disobedience. The people didn't pay attention to what God said, so God let them experience exile. God let them experience captivity. And so Daniel doesn't say like, God, you're mean. He confesses, yeah, we did this to ourselves. We, we have consequences to our actions. But even though the people have suffered so much because of their rebellion, it's really odd, but it's just like us. We, we don't change because they still didn't change. They get delivered from Egypt. They act out. God warns them. They get taken captivity by the Babylonians. And God continues to warn them. And they're under oppression by the Medo-Persians. They're under oppression by the Greeks, the Seleucids, the Romans. And it continues on and on and on. Because we just don't learn. We don't fully repent we don't fully change our ways. And we're guilty of the same thing. You look at verse 13. All this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God. That's us. We, we experience, we know all this calamity that's happening to us. And yet we don't change. We just start playing the blame game with God and saying things like, you're so mean. Instead of saying, yeah, I, we messed up. We're causing this. And this is just our nature. This was happening in the 6th century BC and things are no different today with how we rebel against God and who we put blame on. That we don't look at ourselves. Even though God has been so merciful and gracious and forgiving time and time again. Now as followers of Jesus Christ, hopefully we are less wicked but many times that's not the case because that sin nature still remains in us. That wickedness still remains in us. And what we have with God is this opportunity to see that wickedness within. To be able to identify it and to be able to confess it to God. So that in that humble confession, Jesus Christ has made it possible for us to then commune with holy God. 
where that sin no longer holds us hostage because we have faith that Jesus Christ cleanses us daily from that which separates us from God. And maybe you have the same experience that I've had over the years that, you know, I'm getting, I've been following God for many decades now, and um, I'm getting closer and closer to God. Um, spiritually as well as physically, because I'm past my half-life, right? Um, I, I just had another birthday not too long ago. And um, I'm just realizing I'm getting closer and closer to God, both spiritually and physically. Like, it, it's happening, and it's happening. But here's, this, here's the, the odd thing, weird thing. And I have a suspicion that it's the same for you. That I notice that I'm getting closer to God... But then I'm also noticing that I'm getting further away from God because I'm realizing more and more of my own sin nature and how much I really need Jesus Christ to step into my life. Now, I do think that I'm a less sinful person today than I was before, that I, that sanctity is happening in my life and that I, I'm walking more and more close to God, that I'm, that I'm doing better. But at the same time, I'm noticing that even the less sin that I do, the chasm is just equally as great. So therefore, I'm completely at his mercy. That I, I can't actually do anything out of my own power to earn my relationship with him. Of course, I put effort into it, but I can't earn anything. And it's God's righteousness that is judging me, but it's also God's righteousness that is providing a way to save me through Jesus Christ. Verse 16. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins. And for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see your desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. The emphasis on God. And so many times we emphasize us, how we feel, how our opinions matter. And so you notice kind of the template of prayer here where Daniel goes from I and he goes to we. And then he goes to your. But the I and the we are all about confession. It's not about petition. And then he turns it on to God and how this is, this is all about God. So Daniel first goes to confession before any type of appeal or petition. And yet when we pray, how often is confession part of our prayers? Hopefully all the time. But our prayers are probably more 
heavy on the petition side, more heavy on the supplication and the thanksgiving side. And you can notice this when you get into communal prayer with people. That it's, I have noticed that in our church, we're a very thankful church. Like we always, I, if you've ever been in any type of prayer meeting in our church, like thankfulness is the majority of our prayers, and then it goes to petition into the things we need. But very few, very seldom is it confession. Sometimes, but most of the time not. And I would think that that's probably because we take that more personally and we do the personal confession more than the communal confession. But you notice that Daniel does both. Personal confession, communal confession, before he does any petition. And so when Daniel does get to petition, it's not about himself. And it's not even about his community. It's all about God. It's all about God's glory. Because you notice how many times he uses the pronoun your, you. It's all about God. And he doesn't turn it upon himself and say, like, God, deliver your people. Which you would think he would. Because they've been oppressed for so long. Why wouldn't he pray that? I think it's because he knows that God has already have that in the works. He's already said they're going to be set free. So sometimes I wonder about our own prayers. If we already know God has already promised something, how are we praying about that in terms of saying like, oh, God, deliver me from this thing when he says, like, I, I'm going to. Versus, God, you promised me this thing. Thank you for your mercifulness. Sorry for anything that I've done to like derail that thing. So I'm hoping this reorients our prayers. That this helps us to focus on the confession part of prayer, personally, communally, before we go into petition, supplication. For God's presence, for his presence to appear in what is desolate, is a very good prayer. And so Daniel doesn't pray about the deliverance of his people. Daniel prays for God's mercy as a servant of God to experience the mercy of God. Because we already know the character of God. We know his character. We know praying to God, to a God who is merciful to us. He closes this prayer with, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. O my God, because your city, your people, are called by your name. God, this is all you, right? This, this is not about me. This is not about us. Like, this is all you. So let's pray as a community in need of God's grace, mercy, forgiveness, and realize that the work of the gospel has less to do with who we are and who we are as a church, but actually who God is. And it's God's glory. So for the next five minutes or so, if you can get into groups of five, six, seven, and if you are wanting to be brave enough to practice the confession of your personal sins within that group, go for it. I know some of you might be shy about that. But if you're willing to do that, do that. And I think you're going to open up some gates so that other people in the group will be, able, will be free to do that as well. And then if something communally comes into mind in terms of asking God for forgiveness for something that we've done as a community. 
we want to lift that up to God too. So just take about five minutes to do that and then we'll, we'll reconvene. Thank you for uh, your vulnerability and just sharing the things that are happening in your personal life as well as in your respective communities. God, we're thankful for your patience with us. We've struggled with the same thing since Genesis and yet, yet um, the amount of faith and trust you have in us to deliver a message of forgiveness and a message of reconciliation, uh, even though the numerous failures are present, uh, is stunning. We ask that you would bring to light those things that are causing distance between you and each person, you and our church, so that we can confess those things before you. Not because we want something out of you, but simply because of covenant, covenant love. In Jesus' name, amen.